Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. weeks ago on Mother Knows Death, we talked about a story where a forensic anthropologist, I don't know if you heard of this story, but a forensic anthropologist was shift, was shopping at an antique store and they stumbled across a human skull. And I thought the story was funny because they said, oh, luckily it was a forensic pathologist. And, and I thought like, okay, I, I think that most people, even if they ha didn't have training in forensic pathology, would know if it was a real human skull or not because they're they're just so specific looking to a human and also on my website the gross room we talked about a a book called death's acre which is about the field of forensic anthropology so i thought it would be awesome today on the podcast to interview a real forensic anthropologist and his name is dr daniel westcott welcome it's an honor to have you here today. He is a professor of anthropology at Texas State University, which has the largest body farm in the country. And thanks so much for being here today. It's an honor. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I took anthropology when I was in college in my undergrad, and I thought it was the coolest class that I ever took. I really didn't know about it. And it was mo mostly cultural anthropology, but he touched a little bit on uh, physical anthropology, which I think is is a branch of what you're doing. So, can you describe to us, like, how wh what did you originally go to college for, and how did you even become interested or know about this field? Okay, so yeah, so uh, biological anthropology is one of the subdisciplines of anthropology. So, cultural anthropology obviously looks at the cultures of people, um, and archaeology looks at past cultures and Biological anthropology looks at the biology of people, and we're interested in biological variation and uh, how humans interact with their environment and with their uh, culture uh, on a biological point of view. Um, so I've actually always been interested in both, and so uh, when I when I when I started college, I same thing. I, I took a, a four field course. Uh, intro course in anthropology and uh, I was very interested in doing it. it wasn't my major or anything like that but I was very interested in that fulfilled uh, approach um, and then so I then I took another uh, course but when I was taking those courses there was a um, the, the anthropology department had a library attached to it a little small student library and so I would go in there and study before class and one day, one of the professors came in and said, you know, somebody brought in some human remains and is there anybody that's interested in, you know, helping me with them? And of course, you're like, jumped at the chance. And, <laughs> um, that was pretty what? much, yes, that was pretty much it. You know, a week later, I changed my major and been doing it ever since. I love stories like that because I think that everyone has this pivotal moment. Well, not everyone, I guess, but people that are doing really cool jobs and they love their job, they have this pivotal moment that they're like, wait, I'm not in the right thing and I'm going to change over to this right away because this is something that feels more right for me. Uh, when I was in PA school, I right. interned at the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office and that was really the first time I ever had 
kind of a similar situation that happened with you. They would from time to time have the police call and say, hey, there's bones that are in the woods and we need someone to look at them. And they didn't have a forensic anthropologist that was there all the time. So when they had cases like that, they would have to call someone in to look at them. But in this particular case, I'll never forget that there was it was a trash bag and the Emmy dumped out all the bones onto the autopsy table. And he said, oh, that's barbecue. It's probably pork or something. And didn't even call one of you guys to look at it. And I remember thinking how cool that was that he could just look at bones that fast and know that they weren't human. And he explained to us like the weight bearing joints mm -hmm. and all this different things. But I thought that was really cool. So obviously that's one of the jobs that a forensic anthropologist can have is working on real cases and being a consult. But what are what are some other things you can do once you go to school and become a forensic anthropologist? Well, so, you know, if, if you look at kind of modern forensic anthropology, there's a, there's a couple of things that there's a couple of different approaches, I, I guess, or different tracks that you could go into. So there's obviously the academic side, which is where I'm at, where I, you know, I'm a college professor and I teach forensic anthropology. I do research associated with forensic anthropology. Um, you know, my, and have students and, and things of that nature. And then there's the side where you have people that, that are on the track where they mainly are focusing on working at a medical examiner's office. And I know that that wasn't, was not common in the past, but it is becoming more and more common where you have forensic anthropologists that are doing casework in the medical examiner's office. Not only are they doing when there's actually skeletal remains, but they're also assisting with, uh, like looking at blunt force trauma and actually analyzing the, the, the bones, uh, even if it's a flesh person, um, the. And then the, the third track, I guess, would be working for the uh, government and, and as uh, a forensic anthropologist, and, and mainly that's associated with uh, locating and identifying um, U.S. war dead. And so uh, there are a lot of people that, well, that, that's their, their career focuses on, uh, you know, trying to uh, identify people that died uh, in the in different wars and they go at pretty much any war as long as the u.s oh, was that's involved interesting in it. i didn't know that so you're a professor at texas state university and this is a question i have i i know that you have a doctorate but can people are there different levels that people can go to school to be to work in the field of forensic anthropology or do you have to have a doctorate to do that particular career no, you don't have to have a doctorate. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, a large majority of forensic anthropologists have a doctorate, but not all by any means. Uh, a lot of the um, investigators that work in medical examiner's offices, for example, will only have a, a master's. Um, usually, if you don't have at least a grad, you know, some kind of a graduate degree, you t tend to do more like crime scene investigation, and you might get involved with you know, the obviously shelter remains in that sense, but, um, same thing with the, the, the U S army is that, you know, we have a lot of our students that have gotten a master's degree and then gone on to, uh, work for, uh, uh the government it, it, with assisting in, uh, identification of war dead. Um, 
So it, it's possible at various levels. And then same thing there, you know, if you're wanting to go into just teaching, um, it, you can get the jobs at like community colleges and things, teaching forensic anthropology with a master's oh, okay. degree. That's, that's good to know. I, I like to introduce everyone to all these different jobs they can get, because I think a lot of people just think there's only one thing you can do and you have to do a lot of education for it. And a lot of times, like sometimes I hear from young mothers that want to go back to school, but they really can't dedicate like eight years of their life t to go into school, but they do have interest. So it's nice to know that there's lower levels uh, that people can do it. Um, I know that you did get your doctorate from the University of Tennessee and that the book that we read this month called Death's Acre was about Dr. Bill Bass, who created the first body farm. And so for everyone listening that doesn't know what a body farm is, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so they're really kind of uh, decomposition laboratories or what really was called a taphonomic laboratory, but an outdoor laboratory. Uh, taphonomy is the study of anything that happened to a once living organism from the moment it dies till the moment it's discovered. Um, originally it kind of came out of paleontology uh, and the idea was, or the original definition actually was from, from the biosphere to the lithosphere. So basically from a living organism to a fossil. And the idea was to understand you know, why you don't find a complete body, right? What are the processes that resulted in that? You know, if you find, if you're looking at a dinosaur, for example, and you have a handful of bones and some teeth and stuff, what happened to the rest of it? And what was the processes that, that occurred there? And so in forensic anthropology, we're doing the same thing. We're just doing the very beginnings of that, right? A very shortened version of it. Uh, and so the idea is, is to, uh, conduct research that uh, looks at what affects the rates of decomposition, uh, if there's anything that affects the processes of decomposition, um, and also, you know, to be able to understand the, uh, the, the scene better, to understand, you know, movement of the body, um, you know, what causes it to become disarticulated, what causes it to become spread, uh, what kind of damage do you have from the from the skeleton that might be caused by a taphonomic process rather than something that actually had to do with individual's deaths. Uh, so those are the things that, that go on in uh, uh, decomposition facilities. The other thing too is that they're also a training ground. And so um, we utilize these facilities to train law enforcement and medical legal investigators. Um, to where they can actually work with real remains, um, and they can, we can set up scenarios, we, you know, or we can, you know, teach them how to excavate or teach them how to locate remains. And it gives them the opportunity to learn that, but also if they're going to make a mistake to make a mistake, you know, during the training and not in, in a real life situation. That that's interesting. Cause I did um, my, and then of course the other thing. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say I did my first oh, autopsy ahead. on a decomposed person because <laughs> they were like, listen, this person's not going to have oh, a, yeah. a viewing. And um, it, I mean, really decomposed maggots up to my arms and everything. But that's they said, OK, well, you can practice your first cuts on this person because 
you know, they won't be having a viewing. So it's interesting that you say that. Right. So, so you have, this is cool because it's, you have a lab where you're studying how humans decompose and you're actually using real humans. So where, so all I picture is, because I've never been to a body farm, I just picture huge acres of field with just dead bodies laying all around in certain situations. Where do, where do these human bodies come from? All right. So the facilities that are, you know, operating now uh, are all tied to, or to, for the most part, tied to a wheeled body donation program. And so, uh, and they're all pretty much the same as the, the one at Texas State. And that is, is that um, people donate their bodies specifically to us. Uh, we don't draw them from some kind of, uh, uh, you know, like a anatomical pool or something like that. The other thing too, is that, um, we primarily, what we prefer is people that, uh, pre-register with us before they die. Um, so we refer to these as our living donors and, and so we can, uh, we get more information about them that will help us in, in the research, but it also, we know for a fact that this is what they wanted and they're comfortable with that. Um. And so all that kind of makes a, a big difference to us. You know, we really want people that well are donating their bodies because they wanted to participate in this kind of research and education. Um, and as a result, you can imagine, we get a lot of people that were, you know, prior law enforcement. We get a lot of uh, people that were teachers while they were alive. Um, and you know, just people that are interested in, in, in science, but, you know, we also get people that are, you know, want, for example, a, a green burial and they want, you know, they don't want to be cremated. They don't want to be buried, um, in, in a coffin and, you know, um, preserved in that sense. Um, so there's different reasons, but, to, but that's the main thing is that they all have know what is going on at, you know, what kind of research they would be involved with. And where, um, that this is, I have a million questions. <laughs> I'll try to get them out. So do you have, That's, do uh, you take every single person that wants to donate themselves to you? Or is there, do you have a criteria? Like we're, we're going to talk about a little bit re later, some research that you've done on bones of obese per patients versus, or not patients of deceased versus the not obese people. But so like if you're doing you're trying to look for a specific thing that you're doing research on, do you do you try to recruit more of those those bodies or do you just take all of them and then kind of separate them into what you're doing? We 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 don't um, we don't recruit in that sense. Um, it'd be kind of hard to do, I think, to some to some extent. But um, we we. We don't also, we don't accept everybody that, that applies, but if we, you know, but if it's a person that we have uh, registered and they're a living donor, then we will accept them no matter what, uh, for next to kin donations, which is where the family can donate the body. Um, in those situations, yes, it's pretty much part of the decision about whether or not we would accept the individual is whether or not they will fit into some kind of research protocol that is going on at the time. 
Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And so you did say some people want to do a, like a green burial. So are there situations where you would just leave their body out there until it's completely decomposed and just not like this is this is my question. Let's say you're just trying to you're trying to research a specific person just to see like moderate decomposition. When you're done with that person, do you then give the remains back to the family or do you just continue to use it for for other things and just let them all naturally decompose on the farm? So we 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 do not return any of the remains, but we don't necessarily let them all just decompose out there. So what we will do is after the research is done, uh, they will get processed down to a skeleton. Um, and so that, which is also part of the training is that, you know, it allows us to teach students their osteology, um, and they get to see a lot of variation, but then we, we, uh, curate the skeletal remains and those, uh, skeletons then are used for research. Um, and as you were talking about with the, the, the obesity project I have going on right now, that's what utilize those skeletal remains. Um. There are a couple of situations where we've had uh, bodies that have been out there for, you know, coming on, you know, 10 years or so. And most of those, though, are long-term studies that are looking at, like, how does, how does DNA degrade, uh, you know, where, what bones are best to recover from, what portions of the bone are best to recover from, um, and whether or not, you know, just... Um, Destruction of the bone due to the sun can give us an estimation of postmortem interval in longer, um, you know, in older cases. So those are the kind of reasons that they would be left out there for a long time. But at some point, they all come back in. Uh, so you're in Texas right now. I've never, I do want to go to Texas, but I've never been there. But it's pretty, the environment from what I understand is like pretty dry and hot, correct? Very hot. Yeah. In the summer, we have you know, 60 to 90 days of over hundred degree weather. Um, so it's, it's a huge, but it's not, it's not dry. Like New Mexico dry, you know, with humidity, low humidity, we have high humidity, uh, where we're actually located at is right on the edge of the coastal plains and the, uh, hill country. So, uh, we're actually in the hill country a little bit. So, you know, you get a lot of cactus and, um, juniper and, you know, stuff of that nature as far as plants go, but it's, um, but it's, it's not dry. Like you might see like in New Mexico or Arizona. Oh, okay. Um, well, my question is, is because, but we don't get a no rain. Oh, you don't, yeah, that's, that was my question because what, when you're recreating kind of recreating the decomposition process, how do you, how do you account for it? Cause I know the environment has a lot to do with how bodies are breaking down because if you had a body decomposing in Texas, it wouldn't be the same as it decomposing in, let's say like Savannah, Georgia in the summer where it's just hot and super swampy or in Alaska, there's all different variation, e even the desert. So do you have, do you have certain ways that you could mimic a different environment, like a cold, dry environment versus a hot, humid one? Do you guys study that? We can't really mimic a different environment, but what we can, but, you know, there, there, there are facilities in other areas and we can, you know, do studies 
uh, in collaboration with each other and get some ideas what's going on. Um, you know, there, there are certain things that you can take into consideration. So one of the things that we look at instead of like how long somebody's been dead uh, in calendar days, we look at how long somebody's been dead in accumulated degree days, which is basically the thermal energy that would be available for the decomposition process and, and also for the development of maggots and bacteria and things of that nature. So, um, we can control that to, to some extent, but, you know, decomposition is a drying process. And so, you know, th what's going to happen different in, you know, for example, in Georgia versus Arizona is that the body is going to dry out a lot faster, uh, which is going to slow down decomposition. Where in Georgia, you, you're not drying the body out as fast and, and because it's so hot and humid. And so it allows for, uh, the removal of the soft tissue a lot, a lot more rapidly. And so you can control for that to some extent. Okay. So we, you were talking about how sometimes th that you have people that are cleaning off the bones so you could study them for other things. So that was my next question. I, when I did intern at the ME's office, I had never, uh, I'd never, I've only saw regular autopsies at the hospital. So I'm used to that just like fresh smell of a dead body. And I'll never forget the office was an older office in Philly. It was their old office. And I walked in and it was, it was a situation where you walked in the lobby was on the, on the ground floor. And then the morgue was in the basement and you had to walk down this super creepy metal old spiral staircase. And I went down about halfway and I got punched in the face with this smell that I've never smelled in my life. And I was like, what is that? And it was, it was a decomp was downstairs. And I just was mind blown because right. right at the bottom of that staircase, all the investigators sat there and they're like, they have their legs up, they're drinking coffee, eating donuts. And I'm like, how is anybody eating around this? It's just, it's just the most disturbing smell. But then obviously, like by the end of the week, I was eating Chinese food with them for lunch. You know, you get used to it. But there are people that that just can't ever get used to that smell and everything. So when you hire somebody to work there and help out, it, do you have to kind of give them a test in, in a certain kind of way? Like, hey, this is not like a regular dirty job. It's on another level. Yeah. So, you know, what we're doing is, uh, you know, working with people that, you know, hire, as far as people that were hiring, we've got, we're hiring people that have been in the field and know what they're getting into. As far as students go, um, you know, that is actually one of the things that is beneficial about a facility like this is that, um, a lot of times students realize that this is not what they want to do is that they, they can't handle the, um, uh, the, Sometimes it's the smell, sometimes it's the, um, the appearance, you know, it, and for, so it's different for different people. Um, but you know, it's, it's a good thing to learn before, you know, you're out in the field for the first time. Um, you know, we also do the same thing for, we do, uh, a, a day of training for, uh, some of the local, uh, police cadet. And part of the reason for that is, is just so that they. They know what decomposition is going to be like, but they also, the first time they ever see a dead body is not when they're, you know, doing an investigation. 
Yeah, I can't imagine. I re- I remember the first time that I ever went on a scene to see. I had to go pick up a decomp with the um with the ME's office, and I thought like how upsetting that would be for a family to see one of your family members in that condition because it's just so. It's not only the smell, but just the way that they look and everything. So I think that's cool that you teach cops and stuff that because they're going to come across that kind of stuff all the time. My husband's a firefighter. He he sees that stuff all the time, you know, and it can be really disturbing, especially if if you're kind of at work when it happens and you're not really prepared for it. So that's cool. And I was going to ask you that, like, because when. When I was doing autopsies at an academic center, one time I had a nurse that was observing and I, before we started the autopsy, I went up in surgical pathology and was just showing the students some stuff and I pulled a placenta out of a bucket that had been fixed in formaldehyde already. So it had really no like real blood on it, just like a brownish color. And I pulled this thing out and put it on the cutting board and she turned white as a ghost and was had to like sit down on the floor and do deep breathing and i was like you might not want to be a nurse cuz this is nothing compared to what you're going to see in real life you know so i was going to ask you like have you had right. students drop out because they do classwork and they're totally fine and then they see it in real life and just like can't handle it it happens occasionally not very often but occasionally it does happen This episode is being brought to you today by my book, Nicole and Jemmy's Anatomy. If you didn't get what you wanted this holiday season, you're going to want this book. It is a tour through the human body, starting with A through Z, and it tells you all the different things that could go wrong with your body. And a little unknown fact about this book is that there are multiple members of my family in this book, including my handsome husband, my dad, my aunt and my sister-in-law. So check it out. You can go to thedoramater.com slash book and find where you can get this great book. So let's get into your research and everything. You, one of the things I, so I, I know a little bit about the research you're doing on obese bones versus not because not because I have done any research on it, but just doing autopsies on, I would say, you know, 90% of patients are either overweight or obese that I would do autopsies on. Um, and one case I had this, I did, we would have patients that were called su- super obese, like a BMI over 50 or something like that. And this guy had this large panis that was hanging to one side, like the, a big, thick section of, of belly skin. And even when I did the autopsy and, and laid him on the table, it was just kind of hanging to the one side. And I was shocked when I opened, I did the Y incision and his rib cage was completely distorted from all of that weight bearing on the one side for years and years of his life. It was like the one side of his rib cage looked totally normal and the other side was huge. So it was, it was really cool. So what, what are, what's some work that you've been doing with that? Cause it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're really interested in trying to figure out, um, at least whether or not we can tell whether somebody's uh, obese or not. And then of course, the other, the other reason for doing this is that, um, you know, we know a lot about clinically about uh, gait patterns in obese individuals, and 
uh, how they shift their weight. And, and so it also helps us understand how bone responds to mechanical loading. But the idea, like I said, is that I think currently about 40% of people in the United States are obese. And if you include overweight, it jumps to about 60%. Um, and so, you know, knowing if an individual is obese has a, you know, is telling us a lot about that individual. Um, and it also, the, the other thing that we know is that carrying that extra uh, weight has an effect on adult age indicator, uh, for example, because most of what you're looking at it for adult age indicator is actually wear and tear on the joints. And so you're going to get some variation in that. And so what we're doing is taking an approach where we're looking at how does obesity affect the shape of the, the overall shape of the bone? And then how does it affect the, the cross section of the shaft, for example, does the you know, if you think about the shaft being a beam, um, you know, it's going to, uh, need to be thicker, uh, you know, heavier beam to, 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 uh, handle the weight that's associated with that. Um, and then also the trabecular structure, which is the, uh, the fine strut bone that you have in your joints that, that absorbs a lot of the energy associated with, you know, uh, ground force reactions. And so by looking at these different structures, uh, we can get a pretty good idea whether the individual was obese or not. And like I said, that right there can be a, a major factor of the biological profile because weight has been pretty much ignored in the biologic profile because in the past it's been relatively hard to, to determine. And one of the arguments too, is that, well, you know, what's affecting the skeleton is the lean body mass. And that is true. But if you have individuals that were obese, especially if they are obese most of their life, um, then, um, they actually have a lot. And so it does affect the structure. That's really interesting. What you're saying okay. about, about the bones. Um, I never even really thought about that actually. So when you are trying to age bones, you look at like the articular surface to see if there's, if there's any kind of degenerative joint, which you would normally see in an older person, but you're saying that in a younger person that's obese, you might, you might see something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, you, and then in reality right now, what we are finding is that until we get some, some better data, uh, is that we really can't even tell, but we really just have to have a broader age range if we're looking at somebody that's obese, because what we, what we found was that, you know, when we first started doing this research, we, we thought, well, when we, when we look at obese individuals, we're going to be, uh, overestimating their age all the time because of wear and tear. But it turns out that that's not always true. Um, you know, you, especially in people that are, you know, like you said, to have a BMI of over 50 or something like that, that are, you know, very, very obese. A lot of times they're actually not moving around that much. And so they're not actually putting that much, uh, you know, stress on those joints. And so you can have, you can get where you're actually, um, underestimating their age as well. So there you get a lot more variation now, you know, 
to have some kind of idea of how active they are, if you have somebody that's obese and active, they are probably going to have greater wear and tear on those joints. Yeah, that that there's just so many things to think of. It's just it's just it's just so cool. That's why your job is just really cool because there's there's just all these little nuances that are that just make it really interesting. Right. So now, so you're at uh, Texas State University, and uh, obviously you're you're a professor there, and you're doing some active research. Are you working on anything like cool that you could talk about with us? Uh, well, we're you know constantly involved in different research. So, um, you know, out of the facility, part of the research that I do is actually, uh, using, you know, how do we use remote sensing to locate clandestine remains? Um, and so, you know, in our case, we, we primarily take, you know, images, uh, using, uh, a drone, uh, just because it's, it's, you know, easy to move around and you can get, you know, up and down you know, and move around different things, but trying to figure out what kind of imagery you need, depending on the time of year that you're looking, the time of day you're looking in, in the, the state of decomp of your body and whether it's buried or on the surface. Um, and so we can use, you know, just normal, uh, red, blue, green video or, or, or imagery, you know, but you could also uh, use uh, different spectrums where you're looking at, for example, near infrared or infrared. Uh, so infrared obviously will give you a heat signature. Uh, and there's and near infrared is really near infrared is really good, for example, of looking at uh, vegetation. Um, so one of the things when you're looking, especially for buried remains, you're not actually looking for the remains. You're looking so, for some kind of environmental disturbance. And so, uh, the veget the, we can use what's called the vegetative index. And that is, uh, kind of gives you an idea of the, the health of the plant because it, it reflects chlorophyll differently. And so we can use, utilize differences in, uh, uh, the vegetative index, uh, to, you know, find areas of interest, um, we can also use, if you have a body that's in a decomposition process, uh, buried, you can use, uh, near or infrared, uh, but you, there you have to do it during the, you know, like the early morning before the sun comes up. Um, we can on the surface, for example, it actually turns out that you can use things like, uh, the algorithms that are used in automated, uh, vehicles because they have to be able to recognize people. Well, those same algorithms will, will recognize a dead body on the surface. Uh, if it's, you know, looks like a body still. Uh, so the, as part of what we're doing, uh, we are working at a big, large collaboration between, uh, Colorado state university and then a bunch of the other facilities looking at uh, the microbiome associated with decomposition and how that microbiome changes over time and whether or not that can be used to estimate the postmortem interval or give us any more information about the individual. Uh, you know, I think one of the key things that we'll find as time goes on is that, you know, a lot of how the rate at which you decompose is associated with the microbiome that you already have in your body, for example. 
let's see, what's the, we're doing a fire death investigation training and research there. So what we're looking at is, um, can you tell, for example, for, it was, is a body in a state of decomposition when it was burned versus burned, uh, relatively fresh. Uh, and also then just looking at the pattern of burning on, on the bone and along the same lines, looking at obesity and that does, does fat actually act as a, uh, buffer, you know, I mean, an insulator, I'm sorry, uh, up to the fire or does it act as a fuel source? Uh, does it depend on the types of fires and depend on how long it's burned, things of that nature. Um, so we have a lot of things like that going on as far as in the lab goes, we have the, the, the large obesity research going on. We have uh, actually a, a project that I have a student that just finished our dissertation on looking at, uh, immobility and how that affects the skeleton, uh, and the, the remodeling rates that you would see. So all kinds of research going on pretty much at all times. Yeah, that's just, it all sounds like so exciting, honestly. <laughs> when I hear you talk about this stuff, it's its just cool. Um, especially because when you were first talking about the, the using the camera and infrared and everything, I was, my first thought was like, well, how could you tell the difference between a dead deer versus a human? And it's cool that you're, that you could use algorithms and and like probably some kind of AI technology at some point to to be able to help because I'm like a I'm like one of these almost anti AI people because I think it's just going to be really bad like more bad than good <laughs> but but right. then you hear things like this that you you say like okay well if this could help police and in investigations that that would obviously be better for for humankind. <laughs> But I don't know. I still don't know. I'm still on the fence about thinking if we need that stuff or not. Um, but yeah, the other stuff that you're talking about yeah. is really cool too. Yeah, the case of you know finding the clandestine remains, a lot of that has to do with just narrowing the search area, even if you can't for sure tell whether it's a human or not. If you can narrow down the possibilities of where something could be, because you know we do a lot of searches where, for example, you know we know the person was last seen at us at a ranch on, in Texas. Well, that ranch is 5,000 acres. That's a lot of searching to do. Um, and then of course, you know, the, the research with the skeleton, that is, you know, understanding skeletal variation and stuff. That's what's always excited me as far as, you know, kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, our, the research has application beyond even forensics so we can use it in to understand archaeological remains, but we can even understand it to, uh, to understand, uh, remains, uh, you know, fossilized remains. So we've done research looking at, uh, body mass, for example, and then using the, that information to look at body mass and homo erectus and other species. One of the cool things about this is that you're the evolution of humans in general. I, I always like love this from a scientific perspective of that you're studying all this obesity stuff that's kind of new in our evolution as far as as what you would see changes in bones and different things like um, us using like devices and, and just sitting at computers all day versus how life used to be, right? I mean, now you don't even need to go to the store or leave your house to go Christmas shopping. It's insane. So 
I think the skeleton is going to be gradually changing. It's kind of cool, like just in, in your lifetime that you can be able to work on this stuff and study it. It's really neat. Yeah, I have a student that is actually looking at uh, how occupations affect the skeleton. And so you think about just even the last hundred years, you know, you've had, if you had somebody who was a, a dock worker, for example, you know, a hundred years ago, that would have meant that they would have been, uh, you know, utilizing their muscles a lot. They would have, you know, had, which would have given them really strong bones. Uh, and you'd be able to tell that from their skeleton, but a dock worker today is basically driving a forklift. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're, 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 it's the same occupation. And yet because of technology, uh, they, it, the way it affects their skeleton is completely different. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's so cool. I love it. Are you working on any other projects? Like not, not even necessarily anthropology related, but like, what are you, this is just personal question. Like what else are you into besides looking at dead people decomposing? <laughs> you mean as far as anthropology just like or your, just, just your life? Like, I just, I'm curious because every, everyone always thinks like people that don't know me, they'll just think that like my whole life is, is like skulls and dead people and stuff. And I, I like, I have like, I'm a normal person. I like other things besides, <laughs> I love my job, but yeah. I also like, other things. Yeah. You know? Well, so I, I, I'm a woodworker, so I do a lot of woodworking. I have a shop here at home. I love that. And uh, I enjoy doing that kind of stuff. What kind of so, things have you made? Oh, I've made you know, all, all, lots of different, you know, like kitchen cabinets, and but I also make furniture occasionally. Um, before I went into anthropology, I actually was a cabinet maker. Um, and so now I just do it, as, you know, for enjoyment. But before that, I did... Uh, you know, custom cabinets, um, and, uh, worked on things like, uh, you know, bars for, uh, you know, restaurants, uh, cash register stands for, you know, different, uh, um, retail outlets, things like of that nature. That's awesome. I love that. I'm like, I'm really into, it's funny too. Cause I, I do a lot of like home stuff too. I'm more into painting and things like that and just doing little tiny projects around the house. But I, I love that so much. It's cool. I think it, I think sometimes a, a job like ours is like really heavy and it's nice to just have something completely separate that, that you could wind down with and not have to think about all of, all of the sometimes horrible things that are going on in the world. It's just like a nice thing for your mind. Sure. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. It was awesome and really informative. And um, I hope one day I could come visit you there and go check out the body farm because I've never seen it. And obviously, I'm so interested in it. Yeah, we'd love to have you. It's, it's definitely an interesting and, and you know, it's a, it is a, uh, it's turned out to be, uh, you know, a, a very rewarding career. I enjoy going to work. I, you know. I, and, and because of the fact that I, you know, the, 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 with the outdoor facility and everything, I also get a lot of different variety of the, you know, kind of research that I do. I'm not, you know, stuck doing one single thing. I, you know, I also get to work with lots of different people. Um, you know, so we do, you know, uh, all kinds of things. We actually, for example, we have a mass grave project going on 
where we actually have people from five different countries working on the project. And they, those include, you know, impologists, biologists, uh, microbiologists, uh, dog handlers, um, drone operators, um, you know, uh, geophysicists, all kinds of different people. So I get to see this different, different perspective that I, that I would otherwise, you know, in most uh, academic settings. Yeah, that's cool too. It's always cool to make friends with people that are like kind of in your field, but not. And then you could just learn all these other things that you don't normally do at your job. But it's, I mean, you know, when you're, when you, like, if you and I went out to dinner, we would just have a lot to talk about because we kind of do the same thing, but not really, but you know. All right. Well, cool. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.